Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Darylise Lyons. And I'm Anna Marie Jones. Every other week, we're going to conduct a question and answer episode based on the prior week's podcast. And today we're going to talk about a subject that considering our racial and ethnic heritage has special significance to both of us. Right. Biracial identity and the lingering impact of the one drop rule. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, biraciality embracing the nuanced nature of race, ethnicity, and identity, stop now, go back, and listen. It'll be really helpful to have a sense of context before we start talking about the interviews we've conducted and our personal experiences, and especially before we dive into any listener questions. Exactly. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that Darylise and I are both daughters of Black fathers and white mothers. And it's because of our biracial heritage that we've started this podcast in the first place. Actually, Darylise and I bonded because we're both biracial. Darylise has written a brilliant children's book called I'm Mixed under the pseudonym Maggie Williams. That's her children's author's name. And it's all about the importance of nuanced understandings of race. So when Darylise and I talked about the book, it really clicked for us that we needed to talk more about the subjects of multiculturalism and multiracial identities. So Darylise, what do you say we dive a little deeper now? Yeah, I think that sounds great. And I love, um, you know, that you talked about how our own personal experience really is the catalyst. But, you know, this work goes so far beyond our own personal experiences. And I know we're going to dive into this specific episode. And Anna Marie, um, you had some things that you wanted us to talk about that we weren't able to cover in the main episode, right? So let's start with those. Yeah, something came up for me when I was listening. Darylise, I was surprised when you reported that biracial people are three times more likely to identify as black than white. Um, And I know that how each person chooses to identify is so personal, but I just assume that the majority of people born into dual races would identify with both. You know, that's kind of what you and I have done, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, that statistic really surprised me initially, too. But then as I thought back about my lived experience and the other multi-ethnic, multi-racial people I've known, and then as I started doing more and more research, it just makes so much sense, especially given the history and the lingering impact of the one drop rule and how, you know, racial identification was really, it's such a learned thing. Yeah. And you know what, when I think about my friend Kyle, who's biracial, um, he's a good friend of mine from college. When we were in college, he definitely did consider himself mixed. Recently, I spoke with him and he said that he uh, did a lot of soul searching over the years and through self-reflection came to the realization that he identifies as black. Based on your interviews, would you say that the way people identify relies mostly on their cultural experiences? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. And, you know, if we're talking about your friend Kyle, I think it's really important that the way that people see themselves can really shift over time and based on lived experiences. And it's very complex. You know, as I referenced, a lot of it has to do with history and the one drop rule and the societal messages that have come out of that. And I think it's really important to stress, as you mentioned, Anna Marie, that it is a very personal thing, right? How a person chooses to identify. And I think that anyone who is sort of 
racially biracial should be able to identify with their minority race if that feels like authentic and if that feels like it's true to their experience. I think what I found, though, in my interviews and even in my own personal experience is that sometimes it feels like there can be a lot of pressure put on people to identify the way that society identifies them and not the way that people identify themselves. In the episode, you'll remember Isabel Ballester speaking about the double bind of feeling too white for the Black family and too Black for the white family. And I think, you know, those sort of experiences are really difficult to talk about if we insist on maintaining these binaries around race and if the only categories are Black and white, and there's no spectrum of experience. And Malcolm Burnley, I really appreciated when he spoke about as a biracial person, always feeling special and also not seen. And I think for me, that has really resonated with my own experience. And just this notion that we move through life being asked to pick a side, but that side doesn't necessarily always capture, well, for me, at least it didn't always capture my experience. I totally agree with you and Malcolm um, about choosing a side and really not feeling like you fit in anywhere. I mean, I, I always feel that way pretty much. But, you know, what really resonated with me is when your mom said, you just are. Do you know what I'm referring to? Oh, yeah, I totally remember that. <laughs> because we are. I mean, we are who we are and we really shouldn't be forced to be one thing or the other. Right. So, um And I also liked when my mom mentioned that I was raised in the best of both worlds. That really resonated too. I love that your mom mentioned that. And I love how authentic your response was when she asked if you remembered, you know, being raised that way. And you said, well, not really, but that's how I felt. And I think, you know, it's so important when we talk about sort of the messages that children internalize. And I just love that you somehow, even though you don't remember having those explicit discussions, like you got the lesson, you got that message that um, you, you could be part of both both worlds and you could really love and embrace all of the cultures of which you're a part. Yeah. I mean, it definitely um, impacted me. So I think positive messaging is really important for kids in any situation. But when it comes to being a biracial child, I think it's really important to have positive messaging because kids who are confident will navigate the situations with more grace and ease. And I think we're really blessed to have Um, positive racial identity reinforcement, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know that I realized necessarily like how lucky I was throughout my life until I started doing this work in the diversity space and realizing that, you know, so many people's experience of race have been so much more fraught than mine. So I feel very, very blessed and very grateful. Yeah, we are lucky. Well, did any of your interviewees allude to how the way that they were raised influenced their racial self-identity in a negative or positive way? You know, yeah. I think I talked about that with everyone that I interviewed for this episode because it just seemed like there were so many factors, both at home and then outside the home, that played a huge part in how people conceived of their own race and um, and other people's races. And, you know, when you think about it, that's so self-evident. But I, I guess I just assumed that however parents taught their kids to see race would really shape their experiences. But what I found was that there were all of these intersecting factors that 
governed how a person chose to identify. And, you know, and then also what seemed really, really important was whether or not people could come home and speak about their experiences of race, you know, that had happened out of the home. And so I'll give a concrete example. Cinder Cuss, who was not in this episode, but listeners will hear about in a future episode, in terms of actual racial makeup, Cinder is half Jewish and half Asian. And throughout their childhood, Cinder's parents told them they were Jewish with no regard to their Asian heritage or features. And it was so confusing. Cinder told me about being regularly beat up at school and being discriminated against. And now that they've reached adulthood, Cinder identifies as Asian. And they said something that really stood out to me. They said, when white people want to oppress me, they'll say I'm Asian. And when white people want to rebuff my attempts to shame them, they'll say I'm white. And that's how I know I'm Asian and I'm not white. And so Cinder's experiences of race were vastly different as a multi-ethnic person than my experiences of race. And I think it goes back to something that Malcolm Burnley said about how, you know, there are some people who have a mixed race heritage who their experience is far more on the side of their minority race. And then there are some people like me and like you, you know, whose experience is sort of in the middle of that spectrum. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that, that that people have real different lived experiences. But I would hope, you know, to your question about how kids are raised at home and whether or not that has an impact, I really would hope that parents talk to their kids about these issues and that they're also really receptive to their children talking to them about what happens outside of the home. And something that really stood out to me in this episode, Anna Marie, was when your mom talked about how she stood up for your brother when that boy called him, you know, David Resnick called him the N-word. Yes, yes. And I love that my mom, you know, did stick up for us and especially my brother who is much more open about um, his biraciality when we were children. And it's so true that it's so much bigger than what we hear at home, experience at school, or, you know, what we see in media. There's so much that goes into biraciality and how we feel about who we are. Yeah, right. And it can be really hard, I think, to understand the complexity and the nuance of all these intersecting factors and experiences. And I think, you know, categories don't really account for nuance, right? And so the more that we kind of put people into these boxes and project our own assumptions onto them, I think the harder it is to really get to know what a person's authentic experiences have been. Yeah, very true. And you know what? Speaking of experience, I need to plug a book. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I read this really amazing book over vacation. Um, it's called The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Have you heard of it? I have. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I've heard rave reviews. Well, it, it's awesome. It's about colorism, you know, so like the spectrum of... Um, you know, so colorism basically for the audience to know a bit about that term, it's um, when there's sort of like a prejudice against people who are darker skinned. It gave me the chills to read this book because it's about these twin girls who are light skinned black, but raised in the South during segregation. And they were made to believe that they could never be um, white, even though they were white appearing. I mean, does that sound familiar to you at all? And that reminds me so, so much of your dad. I mean, I know that he was light skinned and he grew up in the South during segregation and that when he was living in the South during segregation, like he really experienced a lot of discrimination. But then 
I know, you know, as he left that space and came north, like his experience really changed. And and I, yeah. So tell me more about the book. I'm sorry yeah. I interrupted yeah. you. And, and to talk more about my dad. So like, it's not that he decided he was going to just be white when he left the South. He decided, you know, I'm just going to like take it easy now because I'm up North. People are more accepting of differences. I'm lighter skinned. People are not bothering me over the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm black, but light skinned black. And, but this woman in the book, one of the twins takes it a step further and actually vanishes into her whiteness which is so amazing. Like she denies the fact that she has any black, that she is black and marries a white man, has a white child and never tells them, you know, it's so amazing how the trauma of what you experience might make you deny who you are. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you mentioned the trauma that a person experiences making them deny who they are, but I think it's really really important to talk about the fact that the self-denial is traumatic in and of itself. You know, there's a phenomenal book about this. It's called A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life by Allison Hobbs. And it talks about how trauma and pain can lead to racial passing, but also how racial passing causes feelings of alienation and loneliness. And I think before we kind of like get into that subject a little more, um, it might be useful to define passing. I mean, I know you you define colorism briefly, but racial passing means that a person who is a member of one racial group is assumed to be and is accepted as a member of another racial group. And so historically in the United States, this term has been used to describe a person of color or multiracial ancestry who assimilated into the white majority. And there are a whole host of reasons why either someone might choose to do this or why, you know, you mentioned like with your dad, he sort of maybe people assumed him to be white or something and he didn't like, you know, second guess them. I mean, I think there's a whole host of reasons for that. But yeah, there's a real psychological cost to passing. Absolutely. Uh, There's a lot of alienation, loneliness, pain that comes from passing and not really identifying with who you truly are just for the sake of ease and comfort. So you're giving up so much by, I I think people who do pass as white give up so much when they don't tap in or let people know, you know, both sides to who they are. And I think it's also so important to acknowledge that like, if someone does that, there's there's often like really significant reasons. I mean, and if we look at history, right, it was people might might pass because you know to escape segregation or to escape slavery or to be able to marry the person that they wanted to marry or i mean there's just a whole host of reasons economic emotional financial um and and it really i mean it's so sad like we should not live in a society that so advantages people who are not people of color because like that really is the reason why an individual would pass is because of the perception of benefits and actual benefits. But again, as you point out, like there's a huge cost to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's so psychological. Well, Darylise, what's your biggest takeaway from this episode? Was there anything that you learned that really surprised you? Oh my gosh, wow. You know, there's so much that I learned and that surprised me. And so many of the things were really particular 
to each person's experience. I could go on and on, but I'll just say that one of the big surprises for me was my interview with Jose Gonzalez because Jose is half Puerto Rican and half Polish, but based on his experiences, he said he didn't really feel like he fully fit into Latin culture or amongst his white peers. Um, And he's always felt so much more at home and accepted within Black culture and in Black spaces. And, And that was really interesting to talk to him about that and just to really like be confronted with how constructed race is. And then, you know, in terms of my biggest takeaway beyond that, I think it came out of my same interview with Jose, um, which was we were really talking about how important it is for people to get comfortable talking about their own whiteness. You know, people who are white or who are part white, like really, what does that mean to have that ancestral legacy? And how do we really like confront that in a constructive way and look at our own privileges? And, you know, how do we use those privileges, not in service of supremacy, but in order to really do anti-racist advocacy work. And I think it just, it was really important for me to have that conversation with Jose and to think about how denying what makes us uncomfortable is not the way to move forward differently, right? Like the way to move forward differently is to really get real about the past and its lingering impact on the present. Yeah, very true. I love that. Yeah. What about you, Anna Marie? What was your biggest takeaway? Wait, you're turning the tables on me now, Darylise. I'm not prepared <laughs> for this. Um, well, one common thread with all the interviewees um, in the episode was the uh, the theme of not fitting in, not fitting into one space. That really resonates with me as a biracial person. So I feel the only true way to fit into a space would be to deny part of who we are. And that's very tricky. And that goes back to the book that I was talking about before, The Vanishing yeah. Gap. You know, the only way that she could really fit in to one identity was to deny part of her, right? And for so many of us, that feels inauthentic. And so that doesn't work. So we're always trying to figure out the best way to fit in. Something else that really um, sticks out for me is, you know, white privilege, as a white passing person, to me, white privilege is so obvious because I experience it. <laughs> but yeah. black mouth is very <laughs> like I'm always like, wow, when I when I have an experience where I feel like I'm utilizing my white privilege, whether I'm doing it intentionally or unintentionally, um, I'm always like, wow, like if I were darker, that definitely would not have happened. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not a person who has white privilege. I I have skin privilege for sure as a lighter skin person, but I don't have white privilege. So do you have an example? Um, Well, I mean, I I don't want to like out myself in any way. (laughs) But yeah, let me like something like um, going into, um, you know, like I I don't want to name the store, but like there are certain clothing stores, you know, discount clothing stores that you go into. And if you have a certain amount of items, they'll give you a tag to go into the dressing room, right? Yeah. It happens to me all the time. Like I'm always given a tag, the dressing room attendants follow the rules and they give you a tag for the amount of items that you have. They'll count the items. Well, one time I was in line to go in and there were a couple of women in front of me, like one or two were of color and they were given you know, their items were assessed, counted, and they got tags. And the and the woman looked at me and just like, 
said, go on. You know, I don't know if she was like busy or whatever and just didn't have time to give me a tag, but the two other women got a tag and I did. And I'm like, don't you want to know how many items I have? And she's like, no, you're fine. Just go on. And I felt like, wow, like, why did that happen to me? Um, you know, why was I allowed in on the honor system and, and they weren't. So I don't know, stuff like that. And, you know, I do have a story about, um, I just feel like white privilege is something that happens in full effect around me all the time. And sometimes it's much more nuanced than I just described. But I, I want to share a story about my mom and dad, because my mom definitely took advantage of her, her white privilege. And yeah. my father often kind of felt uncomfortable about it or frowned upon it. And there was a time, um, well, when I interviewed my mom for this episode, she was telling me about a time, this was in the 1960s, where she was visiting my father's family outside of New Orleans. So family in New Orleans and then a couple of hours outside, which, you know, obviously gets more rural. And they were approaching a gas station and my dad got really nervous and asked my mom to recline back in the seat so that when they got to the gas station, the attendant wouldn't see her because she yeah. and he's not. And she was very angry about this. She was like, you know, why should anyone care who you're married to? Like, it doesn't matter that I'm white and you're not. And he, he said, please don't make a fuss, lay back. Um, you know, he literally had to say, I can still get lynched down here. And, you know, that's just such a true example of privilege versus none. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it must've been so hard, right? Because like, on the one hand, I think Anna Marie and you and I have spoken about this. You and I were both really taught to like stand up for ourselves and practice self advocacy and, you know, embrace our racial and ethnic identity. But also at the same time, like there are so many people for whom doing that would be actually dangerous, like right. to the point of being life threatening. And I think it's really important to talk about these things. And I think it's really important as well for our listeners to to understand that when we're talking about these issues, like we're very much interested in the history as well as the present, right? Because what's what's going on now is intimately linked to what happened years ago. And like, I think even just your parents' experience, you know, 40 some odd years ago is like vastly different than your experience as an interracially married person. And, and I'd like everyone listening, no matter what their racial or multicultural identities are to, to really think about how they're raised and how their parents' experiences affect who they are today. So like, for me, I feel that I can navigate both racial spaces because I was, you know, brought up in both. But, you know, I, I realize that I'm affected by both of my parents' experiences. And that's why I'm a bit like my dad, a bit like my mom. But I can really understand emotionally how, you know, like it feels to be a black person in a black space and a white person in a white space to have that privilege and to not have that privilege, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. And I think it really stresses the importance of empathy and understanding and listening to one another's stories, which I think is like kind of a good lead in to talking about listening to the listeners' stories and takeaways. True. And I'm curious about you know, listener takeaways and questions from this episode. So if you're listening to this and you have a reflection or a question, please call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. 
or you can send a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Yeah, I love that. We can't wait to hear from you. You know, Anna-Marie, something I really want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. This is an unprecedented time in our history. We're in the midst of a global health crisis. People are stressed. Immunity is low. And so many of us are struggling physically, mentally, and emotionally, which makes it all the more important to prioritize our health. Vita Supreme is an incredible company. Their mission is to help people look great and feel amazing. And they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20% off on all of their products. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and their supplements are awesome. I just love them. They've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my three favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Or you can peruse their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the coupon code diversity to receive your 20% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Hey, Darylise, that's an awesome offer. I can't wait to check out those products. I know you've been raving about them. Right? I know. Um, So yeah, let's move on to our listener questions. I know, Anna-Marie, we had some people call our voicemail. Yeah. Well, here's the first calling question from an anonymous caller. My question is, what are the challenges of biraciality? Thanks. Thanks for that question. You know, I think something that's really important to remember is that there's no one experience of race or ethnicity. So there's certainly no one experience of biraciality. And the challenges that I've faced as a biracial person are going to be different than the challenges that Anna Marie has faced or that someone else has faced. But there were certainly a lot of themes that seemed to be pretty universal among the people that I interviewed for these episodes. And so, um, you know, I'll just sort of run through those. But we touched on this a little earlier, this notion of being expected to pick a side. Every single person that I interviewed who's biracial experienced that. And then also feeling exotified, which some people seemed to like really appreciate in some ways, other people didn't. For most of us, I think it kind of felt like that what Malcolm Burnley described as feeling special and alone. It's like that being exotic is somehow like it can be alienating and that it led to that feeling of being like in the middle, which can maybe make a person feel like they belong everywhere, but also like they belong nowhere. And so this idea of identification confusion, something that was interesting that we didn't touch on at all in this episode, but um, I've experienced this as a person who has a sister and we're both biracial, but very different like complexions. That's something that came up a lot that people who had siblings like really kind of felt like one person would maybe appear to be more on one side of the racial spectrum and another person would appear to be more on the other. And like this idea of siblings growing up in the same household and being like kind of told like, well, you guys don't look alike. And that's something that we didn't touch on in the episode. Something that we did touch on in the episode a lot was hair issues and hair woes. And I think Anna Marie, you and I can attest to that as biracial people, right? Like 
Yeah, yeah. So, the, um, and then, you know, this is something that I think is really very universal and it's not unique to the biracial experience, but this notion of being asked to define yourself based on externals rather than internals. And so what I mean by that is this idea that society tells us how to be or who we are. And that's something that came up really, I would say, throughout all of the interviews that we conducted in this 10 episode series, like was really people being othered. And that's so problematic for so many marginalized communities and goes far beyond just an issue of biracial identity. Yeah. Well, good answers, Darylise. Well, let's get on to our next question. Hey, guys, this is Stu calling from Denver, Colorado. First of all, wanted to say thank you so much. This podcast is amazing. It's really supporting me in having these types of difficult conversations with family and other loved ones as well. I actually had a question for Darylise today. I wanted to know if there was ever a point in time where you did not identify as biracial. Again, thank you guys so much. Loving the podcast. Can't wait to hear from you. Thanks so much, Stu, for that question. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in the podcast, I talk a lot about how I was taught to self-identify as biracial. And I've always been very, very clear within myself that I am biracial and it's never occurred to me not to speak up about that. But that at the same time doesn't mean that I'm going around like with a bullhorn shouting my racial and ethnic identity, right? Yeah. Um, But I will say that I've been asked a lot in my lifetime the question, what are you? And anytime I'm asked that question, I always say I'm black and I'm white. And then I think in most spaces, I assume that people know that I'm biracial and I I never shy away from claiming that or talking about that. But there have been some incidents in my life where I think it would have been easy to not take a stand around race. And one of them that comes to mind, I write about in Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And this happened when I was in college. I was on a volleyball team and all the other uh, teammates, all my teammates were white. And one of my teammates used the N-word. Uh, we were you know, just sitting around a hotel room and she, and she used this very pejorative term. And I had to, in that moment, make a decision about, am I going to stand up and confront her? And I did, you know, it didn't even almost feel like a decision because it just, yeah, I've just never not been very open and vocal about who I am and how I identify and and my values around race. But I will say that those kinds of moments have been more difficult in terms of like opening up um, and have really forced me to feel like forced me to feel like I don't necessarily belong. But that said, I've never shied away from who I am and from being open about that and proud of that. But Anna Marie, I have the same question for you. Have you always identified as biracial? Yes, I've always identified as biracial. But interesting fact, I'm classified on my birth certificate as white. Really? Wait, why? My parents decided, you know, you know, on most forms or applications or census, there is no biracial box, right? And they they were like, well, picking other is so nondescript. So it was just easier since I was a white baby to choose white, but they under, you know, understandably said, we will 
raise her as a biracial child. Yeah, yeah. And then it also came up for me um, in terms of the application process for college when I was faced with other and knowing that story about why my parents chose white. I'm like, well, I don't want to choose white on my college application. I want to be represented as who I am. But since there was no representation box for who I am, I didn't choose a box. I didn't choose a box at all. And I wrote my college application on why I didn't choose a box. So that's what it was all about. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that part of your story, but I love that. And, you know, Anna-Marie, that reminds me of an article that Meghan Markle wrote for Elle magazine. And I think the article's called, I'm More Than an Other. Have you read that? Yeah, I actually do recall coming across that article. And it's so true. Like we cannot be defined by a box. Like, you know, a box that doesn't represent us, right? So, I think I think there needs to be more nuanced um, checkpoints on applications. I mean, maybe that's something that we can advocate for. <laughs> Totally, totally. And I love that, you know, Meghan Markle, she went home to her dad and told him her experience. And, and he said, you know, like, next time that happens, you just draw your own box. And I like, I love that. You know, I think that absolutely, it's important for us to be able to pave the way and just say that I am not willing to identify in a way that feels inauthentic to me. But again, you know, this really goes back to the conversation about privilege. And today, Anna-Marie, you and I can say things like that. Um, And even when you were applying for college, but, you know, I'm well aware that it wasn't always like that in our, in our, you know, national history and still in some places and in some environments, it is still really dangerous to, to be a trailblazer in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. But listen, we have another question from a listener. Hi, I'm curious about how to broach the topic of racial identity and biraciality. Uh, Listening to the podcast made me think about how essential these conversations are, but how do I, as a white person, engage in this kind of conversation or at least let people know that I'm receptive to having them? Thanks. Yeah, you know, thank you so much. I think that's a really important question. And I'm certain that you're not alone in that question, because I would imagine that some of our listeners happen to be white people who really want to engage more deeply with these issues. And for me, you know, it all boils down to authenticity. I'll say that, you know, in the midst of all the racial unrest that's going on in the world, a lot of the white people in my life who are more of like periphery people who aren't really part of my life reached out to me and they offered messages of support and like they apologized and they asked for resources and asked how to educate themselves. And Anna-Marie, did that happen to you? Was that something that happened to you? Well, I had people who, you know, I'm not close with, but people who I'm close with who definitely need you know, came to my side as an ally and are sticking by my side as an ally. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I think it's really interesting that you talk about that you've had it happen from people who you are close with and then also people who you're not. And what I found was that 
the people who I am close with, like I loved when they approached me to talk about race and have these like really authentic conversations because I feel like I have authentic relationships with them and I feel connected and I feel valued. And so, yeah, we talk about race, but we also talk about a whole lot of other things. And versus the people that didn't really know me, I kind of, I felt like tokenized a little bit and I felt a little, it felt a little weird and a little abrasive to me. And so, you know, I bring that up because I think that um, to the listener, it's really important to start having these conversations with your inner circle and to have them from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. And I think that, you know, in the same way that you shared with us that like you're open to these conversations, but you don't necessarily know how to engage or how to begin them or like if it's even your place, I think that's something that you can absolutely say to someone that you love and know and have an authentic relationship with. And, you know, and also I think recognizing that as a white person, you might not be an ideal source of support or, or, or like their chosen confidant. And I think it's okay to just let people know that you're open and that you're receptive and also like have these conversations with people also who are not people of color and help open their eyes to these issues. Because I think it's just so important for all of us to get so much more honest and authentic about race and about the way that the past is still and probably will always be influencing and affecting the present in in ways that are not equitable. And so, yeah, I would say definitely let people who are close to you know that you're committed to being an ally and, and really, um, you know, just be willing to be uncomfortable because I think that's the only way forward. I totally agree with you. But we have another question from a listener in Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Ray Warner from Bethel Park, Pennsylvania. Um, I enjoyed the the uh, that podcast episode, and and um, this was touched on by a few of the the speakers. The idea of othering, um, and my question, my thought uh, was um, your your thought. What are your thoughts on um, how the concept of othering uh, is connected to maybe the way a person, particular person, feels about themselves, um, whether they feel that they are better than others or not only so much that, but also less than others, and how that may affect their perception of, of race or racism um, or the concept of othering. Um, because a lot of, you know, a lot of talk is about how people feel that that you know, people who are you know, racist or, or having racist thoughts uh, or feel like they're better than others, but how perhaps does the idea of if people feel that they're less than others, does that uh, impact um, how they may feel, feel others and how they may other other people? Um, just my, uh, my thoughts uh, after listening to the, the episode, I loved it, awesome job, and I loved hearing all of the different voices. And I'm looking forward to the next one. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for that question, Ray. I think there's a lot that you pointed out that really we don't always talk about, but that is so, so important. And people can express racist views or they can other people for a whole host of reasons. So I don't want to oversimplify it. But definitely one of those reasons is that they either subconsciously or consciously don't feel good enough. And that they link their own sense of self-worth or value 
to an identity marker. And I think this happens a lot with race or with gender and people telling themselves that somehow because of the color of their skin or because of, you know, their anatomy or the way that they identify somehow like they're superior to others. And it really is based on the fact that they feel vastly inferior. But I think it's important to recognize that whatever the motivator, you know, whether it be a sense of inferiority or whatever it is, like it has very real consequences, especially when people have the power to enact their racist or bigoted views. And so I think like we can't just write write it off as like, oh, well, you know, this person doesn't feel good about themselves. I think it can be very dangerous to have this unchecked bias. And another thing is that in addition to it being really dangerous, I think it's also very, very pervasive. And parents are raising their kids to have these views and to have these values. And so I think that's why it's really, really important for people to do the work to heal whatever feels broken within them and to discover a sense of self-worth that isn't related to an identity marker like race or or gender. And so my hope is, is that people can start valuing themselves and others as human beings, but that requires us really awakening to our biases and also being willing to be really vulnerable and being willing to look at, yeah, to look at our low self-esteem and to look at our values and beliefs that don't serve us and certainly don't serve others. Wow. Really good answer, Darylise. I have an email question sent in from Libby. She lives in Greenwood, Colorado. I'm going to read it. We have four children. Two of our children have darker complexions, and two of our children are fair with blonde hair and blue eyes. All my children have the same two parents. Most strangers, upon meeting our family, make the assumption we are a blended family. My guess is, even amongst my own children, their experiences in life could be very different from one another based solely on their different appearances. Already they have encountered this. One thing that has come up frequently from peers are comments made towards my children with lighter complexions saying, you're not biracial, you're white. How would you suggest I help them to handle these questions and statements from others? Oh, wow, Libby. Yeah, I think that's such an important question. And we definitely touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of siblings having vastly different experiences of race. But I would say that before we can really start to explore or explain how we identify within the world, it's important to know how we identify within ourselves. So in terms of your kids, I would say I would start by having conversations with them. And you may already be doing this, but I just feel a need to say it. But having conversations with them about how and why they identify as biracial and whether that's important to their conception of self. And also talking about what they might want to say for themselves when these situations come up, because it sounds like these are situations that they've experienced a number of times and probably will continue to experience throughout their lives. In an upcoming episode, you'll hear an interview that Anna Marie and I conducted with Dr. Howard Stevenson, who's the director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative. And in that interview, Dr. Stevenson talks about how important it is to practice these kinds of situations and then to talk about them. And, you know, it seems like, again, this is something that has happened over and over. And, you know, these kinds of racial moments are really 
really critical, I think, to rehearse and critical to problem solve and and just to continue to talk about because they can be very disempowering. And and what you, what makes the most sense is to talk to your kids about like how and why and what they can do to feel like they've acted in a way that feels good and right and true for them. You know, something else that I think is really important when you have these conversations is to talk about how genes can express themselves really differently. And so sometimes I think, especially with young people, if you don't have these conversations, like we as kids form our own conclusions. And sometimes those can be like really um, baseless and also like unhelpful. And so I think just having the conversation with your kids about how genes express themselves differently, and especially with biracial kids, we see a lot of variations in color and features among siblings. You know, I mentioned a little bit earlier that my sister Tyla is white passing and we're both proudly biracial, but we talk a lot about race in our family and about how her experiences are very different than mine and our struggles are very different. But I think that when a person feels very solid within themselves, it can feel easier to speak up about these issues and to speak out. At the same time, though, it's not our obligation to like educate others. So I would just say have these conversations with your kids about what they want to say and make sure that they know that they can have these kinds of racial conversations with you. Absolutely. I think that what you said is so true. And what Dr. Stevenson shared with us, practicing is empowering. Practicing your message to others is empowering, especially as a family, to have that discussion. And it's it's almost like a PR statement for a family, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, totally. And I think it really clarifies because, you know, sometimes race is something that we don't necessarily talk about. And then we assume that people see it the way that we do or, you know, that their views are the same. But I think even within families, like you can have different perspectives. And it's important to really talk about that with people who are safe and with people who will love you through any sort of discord or disagreement. Yeah. And Libby also wanted to know, do you have any recommendations on books or resources for white moms learning how to care for and style biracial hair? Also, how to help children learn to love and embrace their biracial curls? So yeah, I love that. I love when people ask about resources. So I have two websites that I cannot recommend highly enough. One is Treasured Locks. That's treasured, L-O-C-K-S.com. Um, and they have a biracial hair care guide that I think gives a lot of really useful tips and pointers. And it's a totally free resource. So I would check them out. And then there's another website that goes even beyond hair care. And it's Raising Biracial Baby. Babies.com is this website. And on raisingbiracialbabies.com, they have so many tips and resources and just like so much information, but it's presented in a really easy and user-friendly way. And so I would say check those out. And then in terms of book recommendations for your kids, two books that I love are Hair Love by Matthew Cherry. And it's that's a really, really sweet book. It's won awards. And, um, you know, Matthew Cherry is a professional athlete, but it's a book about him learning to do his daughter's hair. And it's, it's just really sweet and really special. And another book that I love, love, love is by Crystal Swan Bates. And it's called Big Hair Don't Care. So definitely check out Hair Love and Big Hair Don't Care. 
there. And then I will just add something else from my own personal experience was that when doing my hair, my mom, who is white and didn't really know what she was doing, you know, she made it really fun. And so when I was growing up, I have these really great memories of sitting in front of Disney movies with my mom while she combed my hair and, you know, did she'd like braid it and and we'd watch Disney movies together or we'd tell each other stories or play 20 questions. And it was just such a fun bonding experience. And, And also when she did make mistakes or when she didn't know what she was doing, like we laughed about that at the time and we still will tell stories and laugh about it now. So I think you make doing your kid's hair like a really fun and connected activity and and you allow it to be okay that you are learning this and you don't have it all together like i think that can go a long way as well it can be really fun to learn and grow together absolutely before we say goodbye let's make sure to do our demystifying diversity t-shirt giveaway so during each q and a episode we'll select a name at random from all subscribers to our newsletter and all callers and people who emailed in with questions And this week, we are choosing Sarah Damiani. So we'll be contacting Sarah and arranging to get her her free t-shirt and a thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. And like Sarah, if you want to subscribe and be eligible to win a t-shirt and keep up to date with episodes and events, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. Congratulations, Sarah, on the free shirt. And thanks so much for being a listener. Thank you as well to everyone who's listening for joining us for this Q&A episode. Yeah, thank you, everyone. And just to let you know, each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. Yes, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Locale by Speakeasy with permission from Blue Dot Studios. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. And to explore these topics outside of the podcast, please pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by Darylise Lyons. (laughs) Thanks for the plug. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Black and Blue, an exploration of the inequities in the unjust justice system. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.